Remain standing, if you would, and take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews 9. And uh, I had hoped to look at verses 15 through the end of the chapter, but we're only going to look at verses 15 through 22 today. So hear now God's word, and let's give careful attention to it. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For will, where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Oh, Father, uh, we come this morning to a passage that is uh, just rich and full. And it's it just it's so, so precious, Lord, as we think about what it is that you are revealing to us today. But Lord, we pray that, that you might speak to us through your Holy Spirit and teach and instruct our hearts. Uh, open our hearts, Lord, even to receive these things. We know that Satan is here, if nothing else, through his demons to seek to steal away the word so it would not take root in our hearts. But Lord, we are praying that not only would your word take root in our hearts, but it would grow to produce a harvest to your glory. It is in your name that we pray these things, O oh God. Amen. You may be seated. Well, since the time of, of Christ, people have always uh, stumbled over the doctrine that Christ had to shed his blood to atone for sins. I mean, even think about Jesus' own disciples in the New Testament when he said, I have to go to Jerusalem so that I would die. And, and what does Peter say to him in Matthew's gospel? God forbid it, Lord. This should never happen to you. And Paul, in writing to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But then he goes on, he says, But we preach Christ crucified to, a Jew, to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. In other words, to God's people, for God to shed blood for our forgiveness is a precious thing. And it's a, one of the things that we do as we gather here on Sunday mornings, is to worship Him for the great salvation that He has given to us. But for those who are perishing, it is a stumbling block. It's, it's foolishness. And, and, and liberal theologians, we, we see that idea, that the hate of the idea that Christ's blood pays for our sin. And you'll see as you read liberal theologians that they refer to Christianity as the slaughterhouse religion because 
It requires the shedding of blood. And they ridicule Christians who believe in a God who would be petty enough to be angry over sins and yet pagan enough to be appeased by blood. But from the start of, of history, from the beginning in Genesis, we see that God has made it plain that forgiveness of sins is only possible through the shed blood of an acceptable substitute. And, and if you remember, even Adam and Eve, as they sinned against the Lord and they realized their sin and, and their nakedness, what did they do? They sewed together fig leaves and, and wore them to cover their guilt and their shame. But, but God did not accept that approach. And what did He do? Kids, do you remember? You see, instead, God clothed the guilty couple with the skins of slaughtered animals. He wanted to say, you guys don't understand sin. You don't understand the magnitude of sin and the offense of sin against God. You can't just take a plant and cover the guilt and the shame. It requires the shedding of blood. It requires a life. And so as we come to Hebrews chapter 9, we see the author celebrating the superiority of Christ's perfect sacrifice by the shedding of his own blood. Now, before we jump into the text today, I just want to share something with you that it may help us as we come to this text today. Um, and it's this, that as Christians, we can sometimes approach the Bible from the perspective only of what new can I learn from this text that I'm reading today? You know, we as Christians have all this information all these spiritual truths that we've heard in sermons and, and read as we study God's Word, and, and we get it all in our heads. You know, and so sometimes we, we look at the text and we look in our heads and we go, oh, no, nothing new there, and we just sort of skim over it. But the Puritans reminded us of the necessity of meditation, to think about those things that are in our minds and, and in our heads. And as Christians, of course, we want to be knowledgeable. We want that information there. But as the Puritans sort of challenge us, it can't stay there. It has to move into, into our hearts and, and into our lives. And the way that that's done is that they would propose is by daily meditation on God's Word. And one of the things that they said is important to do is to take those spiritual truths that, that we know and tie those together with earthly truths as part of our lives. And we see Jesus does this masterfully, does he not? You know, he talks about the, the kingdom of heaven, okay? And instead of talking about it only out here in the spiritual uh, realm, he ties that to everyday life. And he said, you know, the kingdom of God is like this little mustard seed. And everybody's like, a mustard seed? I know a mustard seed. And he said, you know, you plant it in the ground, it's a tiny little seed, but it grows to this huge tree where birds even come and make nests in it. That's what the kingdom of God is like. And it's important for us to take those spiritual truths and to understand them, tie those to things that, that we experience in everyday life, that we might understand it. But even more than that, to meditate more to understand how, that, how those truths have come to not only inform our thinking, but our practice as well. And so as we think about the truths that we have in our head, you know, it's, it's then the idea of how does that inform my relationship with other people? You know, does the gospel come to bear in the way that I speak to other people or the way that I treat them? What about the way that I manage my finances or, or my perspective of how I do my job? Or, or any number of other things that we see in our lives. 
And so it's important for those truths to get down into our hearts. It sort of reminds me, we have this little toy at our house. It's a tube about this long and about that big around. And it, it uh, has all these different layers in this tube. And these layers have holes. And they have like tiny little balls in this tube. And you can take it, turn it upside down, and all the balls run to the bottom. Okay? And they all congregate there at the bottom. And that's sort of like a Christian with all this knowledge in their head. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. But as we take and you turn that tube over, it, all those little balls begin to, what, make their way down through all those different levels, right? And that's what it's like for a Christian who meditates on God's truth and on His Word. It, it begins to permeate the entire person and to fill us completely. And this morning, as we come to our text, there's probably not a lot new that you're going to learn that you haven't heard before. But I want to challenge us to meditate upon these things and not just come at it from the perspective of what we know, but how these truths impact our lives as well. You know, it sort of reminds me, if I could use another illustration, of a man who's, who goes to work and he travels down the same road to work every day. And there's a section of this road where the scenery is breathtaking. I'm not talking about beautiful. I am talking about breathtaking. And as the man first went to work that way, he saw that scenery and he was just amazed and in awe of the beauty of, of that scenery. But you know, day in and day out, week in, week out, month in, month out, year after year, he drove that same path. And after a while, he quit noticing that scenery. That is until he began to carpool with someone else and he was driving to work and they got to that section in the road where this breathtaking scenery and all of a sudden the person that he was carpooling went went <gasps> and he goes what and they're going look how beautiful this is and he's like oh yeah i guess it is i sort of have forgotten and that can be what it's like for us who are christians who have walked with the lord for a lot of years especially if we've not taken that time to meditate and to think about those things we can just go right past the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ and not even see it anymore until maybe the Lord brings a new believer into our life or a baby Christian. And they see these things for the first time and they go, <gasps> because they're just amazed at God's wonderful grace. And so just with those words this morning, let's give attention to, to Jesus as our perfect sacrifice and pray that God would stir our hearts to meditate on these truths and, and to love Him more fully. So the first thing I want us to see as we look at Hebrews chapter 9, beginning at verse 15, is, is that Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. We, we see that right in the opening word. Therefore, He is the mediator of a new covenant. Now the word therefore obviously points us back to what comes before. And in verse 14, the writers just told us that it is the blood of Christ that purifies our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And so Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant because he accomplishes what the old covenant promised and what it pointed forward to and yet could not fulfill. Now, what is a, a mediator? Well, that's somebody who goes between two parties, right? Kids. Most likely, if you're a typical kid, your parents have acted as a mediator at least at some point in your life. And it usually looks like this. 
you and one of your siblings are in a room and you are fighting over something, okay? Uh, you, over an argument that you're having, over a toy or some possession, and your parent walks in and goes, whoa, 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 what's going on here? And, you know, of course, it's like, well, she said, well, but, but he said, and, you know, you guys are going back and forth, and they're like, stop, stop. And they are, they're that go-between. They're like, okay, you, you tell me what you're saying, you tell me what you're saying, and they help you work it out, and eventually, at the end, you're reconciled with one another. And that's what a, that's what a mediator is, someone who stands between two parties to bring about reconciliation. And, and Jesus... Uh, mediation is that, but it's even a little different than that. Jesus doesn't merely stand between two parties, between uh, us as humanity and God, but he stands where we stand with us. You hear that? You know, Jesus doesn't stand, you know, like halfway between us and God. He actually stands as one with us because he is fully man. But he also stands with God because he is fully God. And because he is one with God and he is one with us, he is suited to be the perfect mediator to reconcile us to God. And that's what he does through his death on the cross. And that's why he is the mediator of a new covenant because he fulfills the two sides of the covenant. Now, to, to understand, we'd have to look back to Exodus uh, 24, and we'll look back there here in just a minute to that text. But let me just mention, you probably are very familiar with Exodus 24. That's where God entered into a covenant with Israel at Sinai, Mount Sinai. And Israel agreed to the demands of God's covenant, and the covenant was ratified with blood of the sacrificial animals. And of course, the, the penalty for breaking the covenant was death. And as we all know, Israel seemed to break God's covenant repeatedly, did they not? They said that they would obey the Lord, and yet the Old Testament is just a track record of how they didn't do that. That's just the way all there is to it. And so according to the conditions of the Mosaic Covenant, the, the, uh, the punishment must now be executed. But God chose not to do that. Instead of wiping out his people for their covenant unfaithfulness, he instituted the tabernacle worship. And the killing of animals that you see that we've talked about that they did year after year to cover the gross covenant-breaking sins of the Israelites until the mediator of a new covenant came. Because part of what God showed his people through that tabernacle was is that they needed a mediator between them and God. And so uh, that mediator is the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul says that to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2, 5. And Paul says, for there is one God... And there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. And so we read in Hebrews 9.15 that Christ is the mediator, that, that go-between of the new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now, under the Old Covenant, under the Old Testament, the promised inheritance was to live a long life, with many children in a land flowing with milk and honey. That's what God promised. And also to live there in safety where God would restrain their neighbors. And so that's what they look for. But the inheritance that we receive under the new covenant is much better. Praise God, it's not tied to earthly and to material things. 
the promised inheritance includes the forgiveness of our sins, the removal of our guilt, the, the turning aside of, of God's wrath, all of which was accomplished for us by Christ's life and his death, and which is applied to us internally by the Holy Spirit, but also applied as Jesus sits at the right hand of God the Father, and he intercedes for us on our behalf, that those things would be experienced. And, and his inheritance is so much more than that. It's not just uh, our relationship with God here upon this earth. It even promises us eternity with God in heaven, and even more specifically, in fellowship with him. That's really the focus. It's not the forgiveness of sins. It's not the taking away of guilt just to take away the guilt. But it's so that we might have relationship with Him. That we might return, in essence, to the Garden of Eden in one sense. Where Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day in fellowship with Him. That we as Christians could do the same. And one day we will do that in heaven face to face. But even now we have that joy of having fellowship with Him. But we read at the end of verse 15 that Christ as the mediator of the new covenant not only accomplishes these things for New Testament believers, but we read, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. In other words, he's saying that he, he redeems, that Christ sacrificed himself in such a way that his offering affected even the sins of those who lived long ago under the old covenant. So you ask, you know, people sometimes ask me, they may ask you as well, say, well, how were Old Testament saints saved? And your answer is the same way that New Testament saints are saved. It is through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's how we're saved. For us, we look back at what Christ did and we rejoice in the sacrifice he is. For them, they were looking forward to the promise uh, that would come. And of course, it did come in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we ask ourselves, you know, how can God be our God and how can we be his people as, as he has promised? Well, because in God the Son made flesh, he made atonement for us. He, he took away our sins and, and by uniting us to himself, he unites us to fellowship with God. And that's what the old covenant pointed forward to. So Jesus is the mediator of a, of a new covenant. But the second thing we see here in this text is that Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant who had to die. He had to die. Verses 16 through 18. Jesus is shown to be the one and the only mediator of this new covenant through his sacrificial death. And, uh, you know, sometimes people will ask the question, you know, why did Jesus have to die? Was that so necessary? I mean, God couldn't have God done this a, a different way? Uh, well, the answer really lies in verses 16 through 18. And, and I have to say, in, in somewhat, this is a very hard text to interpret. Some of the things are very clear, but there's a lot here that's sort of challenging to understand. And I'm going to walk you through it this morning. So it could get a little technical, but hang with me. We'll get through this. Okay? If you look in verses 15 and 18, you'll see the word covenant. And it's used almost in all of your translations. Okay? But if you look in verses 16 and 17, uh, you may see the words testament or will. It's sort of referring to like our last will and testament that we might write, you know, uh, so when we die. And, and, but what's interesting is, is when you look at this word in the Greek, it's actually the same word all the way through. So why do we translate it differently? Well, let me, let me read this, these verses if I could so you can get a sense of this. Verse 15. 
There he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death since it's not enforced as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without the blood. Now, the majority of interpreters, commentators, English translators prefer to use the word will in verses 16 and 17. And they would argue that it fits the imagery well of the text. It fits the, the context. I mean, verse 16 says, for where a will, or let's just substitute the word covenant, okay? For where a covenant is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. In other words, the covenant wouldn't be enforced, it wouldn't be in effect until the one who made it was dead. That doesn't make sense. A covenant is an agreement between two people who are very much alive, not people who are dead. So that's why they would say, well, you need to have a different word. And that word can mean testament or will. So we ought to use that. Um, so uh, a last will and testament seems to be a better fit, especially when you're talking about an inheritance in verse 15. And if that's what the author is referring to, then he's saying that for a will to go in effect, the one who made that will has to die, right? I mean, that's why the whole story of the prodigal son was so offensive. Because the son came to the father and said, I know you're not dead, but I want my money anyway. You know, that's just wrong, is it not? That just sounds crass and crude. You know, but that's what he did. Because it really shouldn't go into effect until the father had died. And so if God desires to give his people an eternal inheritance... You know, that is forgiveness, right relationship with God. This cannot happen until God dies and it goes into effect. Now, you might be saying here, what, what do you mean God dies? Is God not immortal? Yes, he is immortal. But behind these words are the glory and wonder of the gospel as well as the God, the glory and wonderful God that devised the gospel. Um, because in his incarnate son, God dies. Okay, look with me, if you would, to Acts 20, 28. So I can sort of point this out to you. Acts 20, 28. Uh, Paul is uh, making a pit stop in Ephesus to talk to the elders of the church. He knows he won't see them again. And so he wants to just put them on good footing in terms of taking care of the church. So he wants to give them some instructions. And so in Acts 20, 28, he, he says to these elders, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. That God himself obtained with his own blood. Now God the Father does not die, but in the flesh as the mediator of the new covenant, the Son of God died. And he did so to bring into effect the covenant promises. In other words, we cannot receive these promises, the reality of these promises, until, until he died. So that's, those that hold to that view would, would argue that point. There are some, though, that would argue that to, to translate those words in different ways really 
is very inconsistent and very arbitrary. First, in verse 15, even though the author does speak of an inheritance, he sort of ends his thoughts about redemption of sins and those under the first covenant at the end of verse 15. He really doesn't talk about inheritance any farther into the passage. And yet it's interesting that they don't interpret the word will in verse 15, um, but they do that in verses 16 and 17. And why would the author start to talk about a covenant and then change the will in verses 16 and 17 and then go back to talking about a covenant in verses 18 and following? And so it is argued that a, that a covenant is a transaction between two living people, and that's why you want to translate it as will. But if you look, there is a sense, though, in which covenants are established by death and with blood. Okay, look at verse 17. It says, for a will takes effect only through death. Now that makes sense. If you said, for a covenant takes effect only through death, that doesn't seem to make sense. But actually the phrase that's translated takes effect only through death, actually in the original Greek, the phrase literally means a covenant is valid only over dead bodies. It's only valid over dead bodies. And, and it's plural. You know, if this was referring to a will, usually that's one person. But, but he's referring to, to many bodies. And, and if you take it as this translation, then it means that, that many had to die in order for the covenant to be established. And, and we know that the ratification or whatever a covenant and agreement was made, it had to be ratified, it required the presentation of sacrificial blood. I'll give an example of it. We see it a lot of places in Scripture, a number of places in Scripture, but in Genesis 15, it talks about the coving, cutting of a covenant. And Abraham, God makes a covenant with Abraham, and, and he tells Abraham to bring me all these animals, and he does. And he tells them to cut them in half, and, and uh, so he does. And, and as the sun goes down, it says, a, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And then in verse 17, it says, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. That is God. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I will give this land for the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. And in order for that covenant to be made, that God made with Abraham, the animals were slain and their blood was spilt so that the covenant could be made. And so it could be argued that what the author is talking about is that Jesus had to die because if he didn't die, the new covenant couldn't come into existence. It, it wouldn't be made. So either way, we see that Jesus had to die in order for the new covenant to be inaugurated. So I think the point that the author of Hebrews is making is, is that the shedding of Christ's blood and his sacrificial death is the means by which the new covenant is inaugurated and the basis on which the new covenant is established. And so Christ had to die. There was no other way for, for him to be mediator for his people. The third thing I want us to see is that Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. He not had to die, but he did so for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, look at verses 19 through 21. And, and, and these verses really refer back to the Old Testament. Verses 19 through 21, it says, For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, 
He took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all of the people, saying, This is the book of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Now, what the writer is referring back to is Exodus 24. So turn there, if you would, to Exodus 24. And this is where the old covenant, this first covenant, is being made. Now, technically, the Mosaic covenant was not the first covenant, but uh, it was, if, if the new covenant is the second, this was the first. But he says in verse 3 that Moses began by reciting the whole law to the people. And after the people heard God's law, this is their response. They said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. It was a lie, but that's what they said. We will do it, okay? And as I said, the rest of the Old Testament sort of shows how they didn't do that. But the next morning, we read that Moses got up and he offered sacrifices to the Lord. And then we read in verse 6, and Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the hearing, read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Well, as you look back at Hebrews chapter 9, verses 21 and 22, you see that just about everything was sprinkled with blood. They would take a hyssop branch and dip it in the blood and just sprinkle it, you know, on all these things. And they sprinkled the blood to show that death was, was the penalty for breaking the covenant. Ray Steadman, uh, in making comment on these um, verses, he says, it, these verses were meant to impress upon God's people that sin cannot be set aside, even by a loving God. Do you not hear people say that all the time? If God is so loving, then why can't he just forget sin? Why can't he just you know, say, ah, don't worry about it, just go away? But, but sin cannot be set aside, even by a loving God, without a death occurring. There's only forgiveness if, if a death is given. You see, God's judicial sentence, the soul who sins is the one who will die, has to be carried out. And so the blood of the covenant showed the penalty for breaking the covenant, but it also pointed forward to Christ and the new covenant with him. If you look down at Hebrews 9.22, it says, Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. But it's also true that, the shedding, that with the shedding of blood of a suitable sacrifice, forgiveness may be received. That's the other part of it, the good news. And so the new covenant brings forgiveness in Christ. Jesus is the true substitute who came to bring true forgiveness for our sins. And, and we see that Jesus ties together these two ideas at the Lord's Supper. Do you remember uh, when he was instituting the Lord's Supper... He makes an explicit link between his own death and the blood that Moses sprinkled on the people under the first covenant. Uh, listen to the words of Mark 14, 24. Jesus takes the cup. He looks at his disciples and he says, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. 
You see, the blood that Moses sprinkled represented Christ's precious blood. Jesus said, and it is this blood that he applies to cleanse those who come to him by faith. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And that's the uniform testimony of Scripture. That's why uh, what made Abel's sacrifice acceptable and better than Cain's. Cain, Cain came to the Lord with his own works with the works of his hands. But Abel brought the blood sacrifice, and so he alone was received by God because without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. And so let's get this into our heads and pray that the Lord would get this into our hearts as well. That once we have sinned against God, there is no way for the sin to be put away except through the shedding blood of Jesus Christ. But that price for our redemption is one that we can't pay, at least not and survive, because God's wrath would consume us. And so we need to substitute, and Christ is that substitute. And so He comes to us and He calls to us to confess our sins and to trust His saving work, and He promises that He will then cleanse us of those sins. Now, brothers and sisters, we are at that point in the road as we're going to work, where now we can see the breathtaking scenery. That's just what we looked at. And what I want us to do right now is just to stop the car, not drive by, having heard it a million times and not no longer being aware, but I want us to stop the car just a second and just look at the scenery a little more closely and consider just a few things in this passage. The first thing is that it cannot be clearer that salvation is a gift of God. Okay? We, we have not earned that gift by what we do. And yet, can we not, even as Christians, sometimes look at the righteousness that we see in our lives that God is working? And we get that confused and we think that that righteousness comes from us. And so we look down on other people and we belittle them because we think we're better than they are. But it is a gift. It does not come from our own works. And so sometimes maybe in the words that we speak to others, it reflects that. Maybe in the attitudes that we have. Like, Duh! can you believe that so-and-so would say this? Like, what imbeciles? And we forget that we are that sinner as well. And that the only reason that we have the salvation that we have is because of the gift that is given to us. Now, as humanity, if we have a choice between law and grace, we will always choose law. Okay? Because law gives us something to do. Grace is something, though, that we need to receive. And grace is a much humbler position. We have to admit our need and we have to be willing to receive that. And as sinful humanity, we don't want to do that. That's why the gospel is so offensive. That's why when you talk to your friends and you think, people, the gospel is free. Why would you not receive this? It's because it's too high of a price to pay because they can't contribute anything to that. And even as Christians, we need to remember that, that we have received salvation as a gift and as an inheritance that is freely given to us by another. Do we cherish that gift? Has that gift humbled us in our lives? Well, secondly, we need to also look and see what a gift we have received. 
in, um, by the new covenant in Jesus Christ. Namely, it's that fellowship with God. And, and how exciting it is to realize that in Christ, your sins are forgiven. And, and so you will escape the penalty of your sins committed against God and against His law. And, and you will even enter into heaven with riches untold. But those things pale in comparison to the greatest gift that we have. And that is that we have actual fellowship with God Himself. You see, God's not some heavenly parent that just says, Hey, I'm too busy running the universe. Uh, here, let me just give you some blessings. Just enjoy these. No, He, he gives us Himself. And, and, and He says, I will be your God and, and you will be my people. And so we as Christians can lift our voices with the psalmist and echo what the psalmist says in Psalm 73, 28. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. That's the blessings we get. And so as Christians, to be a Christian doesn't mean you just ask God to forgive you for your sins and now you know you got a ticket to heaven and you sort of quasi, you know, you go to church, you do certain things, but your focus is really on your life. No. To, to be a Christian is to walk with the Lord, to enjoy fellowship with Him, to grow in your knowledge and your understanding of who, who He is. And so as a Christian, you get to know the fellowship with the infinite, the holy, the transcendent God who is a consuming fire. It, your life will have passion and meaning and purpose and joy and peace and wonder unabounded and these things are found as we worship the Lord as we come to know him more intimately and we fellowship with him and then finally out of all this flows only one reaction to such an amazing gift and that is just overwhelming gratitude surely this inheritance that we have in Christ must motivate us to lift our voices to worship God in praise and so as we come this on Sunday morning that is what fuels our fire as we come before Him to worship Him. As we meditate, as those little balls and that little toy make their way down to the bottom. As the spiritual truths of God's Word, you know, uh, permeate our hearts and our minds and our wills and our actions. It motivates us to praise God. But it also causes us to rise up against the enemy that put Jesus to death. And that is our sin. It, it, it is a sense in which we not only want to praise God, but we desire to live a holy life. And so with all of the strength and the power that God gives to us, we do all that we can to put to death the sin that is in our lives. We don't say, I believe in God and I walk with Him, and we have our pet sin over here that we hold on to and that we come to and we turn to when we need times of comfort and hope. It is a sense of, of turning to the Lord and putting to death that sin. Because we don't want anything to hinder our relationship with our blessed mediator. It's, it's a lot like what Isaac Watts wrote in his wonderful hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. He said, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Amen. Let's take just a, a few moments and... Let us meditate upon God's word this morning that we heard.
so much for the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They, they, you chose to, um, instead of destroying humanity, uh, as we have fallen into sin and rebelled against you, that you have raised up the mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, I pray that you would continue to help us to think about these things uh, on this Lord's Day and, and to consider them. We pray for your Holy Spirit to, to search our hearts and, and to see where there might be ways in our lives, Lord, where we have not believed these things. We have not taken these things to heart. We may know them in our heads, but they have made their way down into our lives. And we pray, Lord, that you would, would, would change us. And God, that you would give us hearts of joy and, and rejoicing and gratitude and thanksgiving. And that you might, Lord, fuel the worship that we give to you. Not that we would come to you only as a God to ask for things from, but the God that we give praise and honor and glory for what you have already given us. Oh, God, we thank you so much. And I pray, Lord, that if there be those today who do not know you, who are hearing this message, we pray that you might work in their hearts, God, to see who you are and that you are their only hope and that they would turn their lives to you. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Mm -hmm.